Hello and welcome to episode 96 of The Dive Down. Nice. A Magic the Gathering podcast with a casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in Modern and Pioneer. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago. And with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. Just the two of us. I get to do this bit again. Just, Just the, the two, two of, of us. Me you and my Stan. friend. No, it's me and Stan. Dave is out sick this week. Yeah. Dave, I mean, I don't want to like violate any like HIPAA type stuff, but my man my man's got a C to do the podcast, right? A- apparently. Yeah. Or so he claims. <laughs> I mean, we this is an audio, it's an audio medium. I don't know why. I don't know why why the Godfather's gotta look at stuff. Yeah, Dave got something in his eye. Um, so he decided to take the night off. Hopefully it's yeah, not but, contagious. Yeah, I mean, we did we both uninstalled our antivirus on our computers. <laughs> that's actually that's true. We literally did do that. Turns out you know you no longer need antivirus software on Windows computers. Well, I mean, unless you're like like I said, unless you're downloading executables from kazaa masquerading as windows media files about like cranberries zombie speaking of cranberry zombie stan i want to get to this later yeah but miley cyrus still slaps so so talented did you know that she was billy ray cyrus's daughter did you know oh i did know that i think do you know that uh apparently she is dolly parton's goddaughter did you know she was hannah montana did you know that she came in like a wrecking ball. I love that song. It's a good song. All right. So it's just the two of us. Dave is out sick. We're going to do our best to keep it together. But you know, when the Godfather's out, it's hard to stay focused. We get loose. We get silly. We get. I'm like, I've got bubbly water here. I'm getting tore up. It's got a cherry lime flavoring. Did you make your own cherry lime bubbly water? Oh, man. I got, I got that soda stream. Mm. Speaking of, you know how long, I'm I'm sorry sorry for the listeners, you know, we're not going to go like 28 minutes and 7 seconds without having any magic content, I swear. Yeah. Did you know, it took me like 6 months to find a SodaStream canister after the novel coronavirus plagued our nation and world. It took forever for me to find a SodaStream canister. I believe it. I'm down to one because the last time we had a house sitter, she put the canister and the dishwasher and it was plastic and it like got all transformed and melted oh oh you mean like oh i'm no i mean like the 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 bubble container oh the metal the metal bubble the the bubble shooter do you trade those in do, do you do the trade in like a propane tank you're supposed to but you gotta find them first exactly that's the hard part my ace hardware doesn't do it anymore ace is not the place for soda streams you can do it at a staples at least in chicago okay again i have to apologize to the listeners i went i was going by a strip mall type thing and i saw like an office depot and i was like man what do i get at office do i gotta like go buy some reams of paper like what do i get there like do i buy like my plastic chair mat now you know staples has gas okay i'm going there tomorrow i still have one i've got one in reserve it's just been empty just waiting there Anyway, let's get in this. I hope our editor is gratuitously cutting this content. Yeah, let's get into it. On this week's episode, Shane and I bite off more than we can chew. We already have. In an attempt to imagine a little something called the unifying theory of good magic formats. Join us for some lofty chin scratching as we try to figure out and measure what leads to the ebb and flow of people's fun with certain magic formats and what today's modern metagame in particular 
tells us about overall format health. That sounds like a good episode, Stan. Thanks. It's it's an ambitious one, that's for sure. It almost sounds like an episode that like Cool Jake the patron would request. Yeah. And like make us do a ton of homework, but we did this to ourselves. Yeah, it's it's it's, good. it's it was supposed to be, you know, it was supposed to be kind of a freewheeling episode concept and I worry that we we actually f- we fenced ourselves in in like in a, you know in a good way where it's like oh this is actually harder to think about than i imagined in like a good way yeah i really scratched my brain on notes this week but stan i want to take us in to the best part of the episode are you talking about housekeeping oh you know it sick bro okay we've got we've got no new patrons we have no increased tiers that's okay i'm gonna tell you some good reasons that you should sign up for our patreon and maybe even increase your tier in about 10 seconds after I thank Chris W. for their awesome, kind review from over the pond in Great Britain. It's it's like Britain, but it's even better. It's Great Britain. England is good, but Britain is great. Yeah, I would agree with that. I've never been to either of those countries. Yeah, neither have I. Okay, so I, I promised some Patreon information, right? So our Patreon is the way that you separate your dollars from yourself and give them to us. And the reason you would want to do that is one, you like the podcast. It's okay. It's a pretty good podcast. We work pretty hard on it. Second reason is you get cool stuff. The cool stuff includes cool stickers, cool pins, cool custom tokens, a really cool playmat. And ultimately at the top tier, you get to tell us what to do for an episode every six months. That's pretty good. Um, You also instantly get access to the super secret Slack server. The only place I talk about magic online, honestly, I have like 15 different discords. So like, I have like this discord list I'm looking at right now and there's like 30 icons. You know how many I use of those Two. Neither of them are magic, <laughs> magic based discords because it's really hard to pay attention to all these discords when I have the Slack because it's very good. Can we take a quick stroll through the Slack real quick, just to give people a sense of what the patrons are talking about? Yes. Today we had a lively conversation about waffle toppings. Yeah, European waffle toppings apparently include sour cream. I still think it's a translation error. I think he means creme fraiche, but it could be sour cream. This is Norway. It is actual sour cream. As a fellow European, I can tell you, my family puts sour cream on literally everything. That's gross. I know. What else do we have in the Slack today? Well, we also talked We talked about uh, Miley Cyrus's cover of uh, Zombie from Save Our Stage or something like that. Fest. Save, our, save Our Songs. Save Our Stages. Yeah, save our stages. We talked about uh, contemporary horror. Mm-hmm. We also talked about, of course, we talked about Hades and other video games. Importantly, what happened in the Magic Channel, Stan? I don't pay attention to those that much. We have a lot of Magic Channels. I think the thing we were talking about today was this weird Naya equipment deck that it kind of looked like Ponza, but it also had Stoneforge Mystic and Skymall and Embercleaves that Ryan Donk brewed up. Notable Adnos player. We talk about everything. Spoilers, the latest spoilers that are coming out. Oh, yeah, the Commander Legends leaks. Yeah. We're not going to talk about them on the pod, but we talk about them on the Slack. Anyway, the reason that you would want to uh, even give us $1 an episode is because the Patreon rules, excuse me, the Slack rules. Also, the Patreon rules. There's cool stuff. But anyway, you don't have to do it. We'll always be here. We just like making this show. If you'd like to help us out, if you'd like to support us and keep us going, that'd be awesome. Head over to patreon.com slash the dive down and look what we have to offer. You could also support the show while playing magic. We do that. Even if you put like Nutella on your waffles, 
There's other ways to be involved. Manatraders.com. It's an MTGO rental service. And when you sign up, you can use promo code THEDIVEDOWN, all one word, and get 15% off your first three months of a Mana Traders subscription, with which you can play basically any deck that doesn't include Uro in Modern. <laughs> yeah, who needs it? But otherwise, I think you can play like most Pioneer, if not like all or most standard decks, and whatever other formats you enjoy, whatever other constructed formats, especially. Yeah, Mana Traders rules. Love it. All right, we've successfully eaten up a lot of time before we have to go into the breakdown because man lord knows without dave here we do have to spin our wheels a little bit but uh we got some challenges to talk about as usual we have a few modern challenges and now that pioneer is not completely dead we do have two pioneer challenges as well so i'll 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 do the usual i'll walk us through some top eights and then walk us through some combined metagames so we can get a sense of where the formats are hanging out right now. There are actually some changes afoot in the most successful decks. So keep your ears peeled and uh, waiting for that hot, hot new information. But sit into the first modern challenge on Saturday. So first place, something a little bit new, a little bit similar is NHA 37. I believe that's the uh, National Hockey Association from 1937. They're a big fan. Mono White Heliod combo so this is not a taxes deck this just wants to get the heliod combo off as efficiently as is feasible you know it's not quite as all in as some of the green white heliod combo decks we have been seeing this does offer some protection giver of runes and grand abolisher a kind of commander staple i think in white that makes your opponent really not able to do much if anything on your turn uh, some interaction in Skyclave Apparition and some tutoring with Ranger of Eos. And a, a card that also appears here, we mentioned it in our set review as a potential kind of pioneer possibility, is Luminarch Aspirant. Mm-hmm. It's a one and a white creature that adds a plus one, plus one counter to a creature you control at the beginning of your combat. So that, of course, would work nicely with uh, getting a couple counters on your walking ballista sooner than normal. So it's curious to see this deck just kind of show up, take first place in this challenge, but why not? You know, it's modern, baby. There's always something new around the corner, something novel that will show up and surprise people. Man, this Grand sure technology is so interesting because it's it's essentially silence right during your turn your opponents cannot cast spells or activate abilities of artifacts creatures or enchantments yeah it's it's like a creature based to fairy just protects your combo if your grand abolisher is out and you can combo off with hanger back and heliod gg my friend gg it's like why is this card not really been showing up in similar strategies right like it's good protection it's only white white do you know what i mean probably just because it's 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 hard to have a good deck that's in all white in yeah modern. but i mean people are casting uh Oriok champion same same mana cost but yeah it's good i think it's a cool deck i think the heliod combo is not going anywhere in modern until heliod and walking list are, are banned so that's probably it's unlikely to happen but a cool deck. I even think that the Heliod combo is going to get more prevalent because the addition of Skyclave Apparition and maybe Luminarch Aspirant, but especially Skyclave just makes white such a stronger color than perhaps ever before. It's cool. All right, second place, Freak Nightmare on Oops All Spells, uh, doing what it needs to do. Third is kind of a 
prowessy red deck featuring Jingantha, uh, piloted by the Nair. We saw something like this deck before. Uh, it's using Bomat Courier, the Swift Spear Soul Scar combo, Abbot of Carol Keep, Bone Crusher Giant as the creature package. It has a smattering of only single mana. Red like cost red spells. Weirdly not gutshot, however. Uh, provides some damage and some interaction. One thing I think is interesting, Stan, mm-hmm. you can tell me if you think I'm crazy. Uh, I don't really get the flame slash here. Like, maybe it's just like, this is a total just meta call, right? Where it's like, okay, creatures are in the format. I need to get my damage through with my prowess creatures. So I'm going to lean towards flame slash to deal four damage to a target creature at sorcery speed. In my mind, I'm like, why not Lava Spike? These are both single red mana sorceries, you know? And what, what you're really hedging towards with Flame Slash is, I need to get creatures off the board. With Lava Spike, you're saying, I need to do damage to the dome. And I guess, I just always feel like Lava Spike is on and Flame Slash is not always on. So I don't really want dead cards in my hand in a deck like this. Well, Lava Spike can be a dead card too in this deck because it is a tempo creature deck. And you're very seldom winning off of burnt spells and your prowess decks unless you have bolt and lava spike and another three damage burn spell and likewise flame slash tags a lot of relevant creatures in the format right now sure i mean it's going to do a lot of work against any human almost that you're going to face down because four damage is a lot four damage for a single man is good so like if you're saying i'm going to see creatures then that's what you want to be running I think, right? It's just so efficient at doing the job. Totally. I mean, with the exception of Magmatic Sinkhole, I think this is like the best one mana red creature removal spell. We are also seeing Spike Field Hazard. That's the uh, flippy land. It does a single damage to any target. Uh, if it dies, like you exile it, or it can come in as a tapped red source as well. Certainly useful uh, uh, instant speed prowess damage as well. I think that's really great against Uro especially because if you hit Uro in response to one of its triggers before it gets to the graveyard, it is exiled. Oh, oh, interesting. So Kia, because sacrifice is death in magic language. Like die, die means like hits the graveyard, mm-hmm. right? So, mm-hmm. you know, if, if it, if the sacrifice trigger goes on the stack, you're just like pew, like even though you didn't do six damage to it, you don't need it's to exiled. Just do yeah, the that's one. Cool. That's Zap. cool. I like that. Good tech. Also, it deals that one damage to any target. So there's your lava spike. <laughs> one whole damage. I like it. All right. Fourth place. A twisted wombat. Four color Omnath. Sahili. Felidar. Combo. Uro. Featuring Yangatha. That's a lot like the canister bill we talked about last week. Uh, Sahili. Felidar. Combo type stuff with you know, a lot of good cards surrounding it. Fifth place. Sodic on Dredge. I think this is a new deck for him. You know, I think this is this is him expanding his range. Um, I'm proud of Sodek for doing this. Uh, he's pretty good at magic, though, so I think he can handle Dredge. He, In all seriousness, of course, we know that Sodek is really good at Dredge. Uh, and you should look at what he's doing. He appears to be off Silver Smoke Ghoul. Mm-hmm. He's back on Bloodgast. And uh, some interesting tech in the side. I love Vengeful Pharaoh. It's such a cool card. It's such a good piece of tech when like Death Shadow style decks are back. Um, I think that's really good. Uh, I also like, there's a couple Abrupt Decay back in the side as well. It's sort of just, you know, it's 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 flexible. It's not counterable. I think it's a good idea. But, you know, it's, it's Sodek. 
Sodex lists do change a lot. So it's like, you can't even look at one for one week and be like, okay, well, this is the right build for next week. But I think it's always a good idea to look at what uh, they are doing and say, I should learn from this. Agreed. Sixth place, Mock Squirrel on Demir Mill. Uh, they're focusing a lot on the, they have the formatting cacophony, uh, that has been kind of up in the air, but we see for here, we're seeing a couple of one-offs like Crypt Incursion and Mission Briefing, Singleton Cling to Dust. You know, it's got the eight crabs, of course. It also has Luris. I don't remember if Luris has been a staple in this re- even recently, but I guess if you want those crabs back, that's pretty helpful. Or your Mesmeric Orb, I suppose. Yeah, because this deck does a certain amount of self-milling as well because of those Mesmeric Orbs. So eventually, if you can get your Luris online, you can start getting extra crabs back out of your yard or, as you put it, extra orbs. All the orbs. Um, Seventh place, Sisiagore. Sisiagire on four color row control. Look, it's only 1100 uh, Magic Online tickets. So I suggest everyone just rent this, you know, have some fun with it. It's really easy. Maybe just buy it and then sell it back. I mean, just experiment. Shane, what's another student loan? Uh, Stan, I, I think I have, I have like two months left until mine are paid off. I've had them uh, this hilariously low payment because I went to just a regular old state college in you know the late 90s. Uh, so it wasn't a lot of loanage, uh, but I have had no reason to pay it off early because the interest is so low. So two months. Wow. Your your forty year old friend will have no more no more debt. Eighth place. Mazeltov. <laughs> Exotic Herman on uh, is this Yund 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 Death's Shadow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like you'd expect. I mean, it's it's just Death's Shadow, uh, Scourge of the Skyclaves, Tarmogoyf, you know, all that kind of stuff. I love that. I think this is a main deck Luris deck. It is. Main deck Luris. And I'm not sure why. Oh, it's for the Street Wraith. That's why. Yes. Uh, next challenge. First place, uh, Darkens on Humans. Second place, Stay Rospet on the Uro Omnath Sahili Felidar combo deck. Third place, Nakoni on Golgari Elves. Wait, what? Format staple Golgari Elves. <clears throat> I'm sorry. What? It's back, Stan. It's tier one. Was there no prowess in this tournament? Doesn't look like it. So something I noticed, Dan, Tajuru Paragon. There's a lot going on here. So yeah, Tajuru Paragon, that's that's the big one. What set is that from? That's from the new set. Zendikar, oh, oh, that little shield, Zendikar Rising. I, I don't own any of those cards yet. It's a party payoff. Yes. Paragon is... Party payoff! A cleric, rogue, warrior, and wizard. All right, so w- what does it actually do? It's a, it's a two-mana three-two. So are you playing it for the body? I don't think so. It's got kicker three. When it ETBs, if it was kicked, reveal the top six cards of your library. You may put that a creature that shares a creature type with Tajuru from those into your hand. Put the rest in the bottom. It doesn't even go on the board. So it's not like this is extra copies of Coco. This is sort of your replacement for... Um, what, what is that card? Where it's like, look at the top five, put all creatures into your hand. Oh, yeah, gather the pack or whatever? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it? Something like that. So, so, okay, so Cleric, Rogue, Warrior, Wizard. In this deck, you have warriors and, like, druids. Well, it's also an elf. It, 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 you, you use it to get an elf. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. There's also a couple of Nissa of the Shadowed Bows. Oh, yeah. That's the new Golgari Nissa. And, you know, this isn't, like, a landfall deck, except for now we've got these four Elvish Reclaimer 
which gets bigger if you have three or more lands in your graveyard. And as a result, we now have six fetches as well. Maybe this is the new shape of elves. Maybe this is what elves has to do to keep up with today's format. I mean, it's it's, it's a wild deck. Uh, I'm I really hope you try this as soon as possible. Give me and us your thoughts on it. Fourth place, uh, Azak. Is this Ari Zach? Like Ari Ari Zach's uh, their account? Um, I don't know. Probably, maybe. Maybe they have a long resume on Goldfish. Yeah, it might be. Then they're a very good player. Uh, Selesnya Titan, like Dryad nonsense. We talked about this deck. Holding on, Azax. Fifth place, Josito Shekel on the green-white Heliod combo. I kind of mentioned this earlier. This we've talked about this. It kind of has the you know the the spike feeder, conclave mentor, Oriok champion, scavenging ooze thing going on. You know, it's it's using Aldami's call, collective company, Utopia Sprawl to really try to get this combo off as soon as possible, as efficiently as possible. Sixth place, just Jack on humans. Seventh place, McCleskey on humans. Nothing really interesting to say about either of these builds that I noticed. Eighth place, Musasabi on Selesnya, Titan Dryad stuff. I believe they're kind of considered one of the originators of this deck, correct? Musasabi? I think Dave's mentioned their name a few times. It's a slightly different build than uh, Zach's build above. They've got more ways to get lands onto the battlefield and then kind of recur them from the graveyard as well. There's like a Singleton Corsair of Crufix, Singleton Knight of the Reliquary, Ramanap Excavator, even uh, Yasharn Implacable, 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 how do you say that, Stan? Yasharn Implacable Earth? Implacable, yeah. Yeah, so it's uh, that's a newer card as well. Um, it ETBs and you get a forest and a plains card to put them into your hand. And p- players can't pay life or sacrifice non-land permanents to cast spells or activate abilities. That's fun little, uh, it's, a, it's a hate bore. Not a hate bear. <laughs> it's a four mana hate bore. All right. Um, so not only did elves make it to the top eight, but this is like a stand tournament with two blue moon decks in the top 32 as well. One being the Emrakul combo. Yeah, through the breach. Through the breach. And the other one just being like straight blue red control, main deck, blood moons, Jace, yeah. and a yeah. bunch of counter spells. Good. Yeah, good. It's a- I should have played in this tournament. What was I doing on Sunday? Yeah, it's a wild tournament. There's like six humans decks in this tournament alone. Um, but let's talk about the combined meta of these two tournaments. I kind of hinted earlier that it was a little bit novel. We have seven of the 64 decks. I mean, not a ridiculous amount. Are the four color Sahili combo decks. So it's the you know, Sahili uh, Felidar Guardian with Uro and Omnath and all the good sort of controlling spells as support to uh, get this combo off. It's Splinter Twin. That's why. Yeah, why not? You can play control. You have like this nice plan B beatdown with Uro, or you can just combo off and win on the spot. Yeah, and you have you, know, you have Teferi right now. Teferi three is a great way to, to protect these combos that want you want to go off on your turn. You know, Teferi turns off that interaction. Uh, not that fun, but that's the way we play Magic these days, <laughs> with as little fun <laughs> as possible. Uh, but speaking of fun, uh, humans next up with six copies. Uro piles five copies rakdos death shadow with five the white green selesnia titan decks uh four death and taxes four that's surprising you know death and taxes is back dredge three uh red aggro based decks three uh the white the selesnia heliod combo two amulet titan holding strong with two and tron lingering with two and uh i count like 19 other decks for our top 64 humans really putting up a lot of great results lately 
and yep. having an especially good weekend. Oh yeah. I almost wonder, here's my small sample size conclusion. Humans popularity is what contributes to elves and even like the occasional blue moon deck to do okay because elves can outrace humans and just get wider and trample over them and blue moon was one of those decks that like sort of evolved to prey on humans once upon a time be it with main deck blood moon as well as like a ton of removal spells yeah i mean next thing you know we're gonna have think in the ice arc light phoenix it's gonna make a comeback to stop all these humans decks don't make fun of me shane yeah you know <laughs> But I do want let's let's quickly let's quickly head into these pioneer challenges. I'm gonna breeze through these a little bit more quickly. Fast fake on Jeskai Luca featuring Yorian. A uh, Snooze Merrick on four color Omnath. Jabberwocky on Soltry Traverse mid range. Hmm. It's back apparently. It's an Euro deck. Yeah, I mean, but Soltry has been an Euro deck. Do you know what I mean? Uh, some interesting Traverse targets here in Seagate Stormcaller, Tireless Tracker, the Atris Oracle of Half Truths, uh, Elder. Garagoroth and Ishkana Graf Widow. Uh, Scully 323, Jeskai Planeswalker, Enchantment Control featuring Yorian. I gotta, I gotta mention this, Dan. I think it was really weird. The sideboard stretches into black a little bit with, a, with like a Thought Distortion and a Ruinous Ultimatum. These cards both require double black pips in an otherwise Jeskai deck. This deck has a grand total of two lands that make black with two Savai Triumphs. This is very, these are very ambitious sideboard spells. No, it's not. This deck runs four fires of invention. These, these spells are never being cast for their mana cost. Stan, good reminder how fires of invention works. It's a good card. <laughs> I forgot that this card was in this deck. Seems playable. <laughs> our format staple of Claudio is on our format staple of Niv to Light in uh, fifth place. Mid range is back. Poker's Wizard. Mono Black Aggro, sixth place. Uh, LED 91 or L3D 91 on Gruel Mid Range. Same build we've been seeing. Tops out with a few uh, QBs and Glory Bs. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Yao Claudiomes on Selesnia Auras featuring Loris. All right, next Pioneer Challenge. Mr. Kaufulet on Saltai Rack with Uro. No Omnath here. It's a super controlling build. Tons of removal, tons of counter spells. You know, takes over the game with Reclamation. Second place, Snooze Merrick again. Second place in both of these challenges on four-color Omnath. Sheffin on Sultai, Dredgeless, Graveyard, Shenanigans in third. Fourth place, Traft. Again, we mentioned Traft, I believe, last week on Azorius Spirits. Tia, 93 on Boros Wizards. Harry, 13 on Demir Control. This is a This is a pretty strict control deck. Lots of removal encounters and sweepers, even like Extinction Event, where you... Kill all the creatures of even or odd proclivity. You exile them, not just to kill. I see that's important. Yeah. Timu on Demir Control, uh, built totally different. It's got three thing in the ice, two Seamgates, Seagate, Stormcaller, a few Brazen Bower, even a Kalidus. It's got the four Narset, it's got an Ashiac Nightmare Muse. You know, it wants to take advantage of that Days Undoing and Gyra Reach Sanitarium synergy. That's a possibility there. And there's no real counter magic main deck. It's a lot of removal, but not a lot of counter magic. What do you think about this? Yeah, Timu's a notable modern control player that mm-hmm. does very well with uh, blue-red, blue-moon style decks in that format. So it's interesting for them to move into Demir in this format. Probably just says something about their assessment about Demir colors as a control strategy in Pioneer. Yeah, I like it. It's cool. It's not my style, but I'm glad to see that a deck like this can exist and can succeed. 
So let's look at this combined meta here. 11 okay. oops, 11, 11 oops all spells decks. Did you mention that soon came in eighth place with Gruel Midgrate? Oh, I did not. Soon, I don't want I don't want to ignore you. Soon on Gruel mid range, same same build as we mentioned in the other top eight. I just love that MTGO handle. Soon, soon, soon. Okay, combined meta eleven oops all spells decks. There's a mix of builds here. We have some eighty card main decks with Neo form, some with Yorian, some without Yorian. Interesting, right? There's some seventy five card builds. You know, full you know in, in the sixty normal and fifteen sideboard. Some are adding some hexproof ramp now with Paradise Druid or Sylvan Carry added or both to try to get those down on turn two, combo off on turn three, or you know sacrifice them uh, into something else. So clearly this deck is legitimate, right? Like it when I played it in its its original build, I was like, seems fragile, seems slow, seems like you can get outrun. This is trying to eliminate the the speed issue and the and the slight lack of consistency issue. And it looks like it's doing well. I mean, we didn't talk about it anywhere in our top eights, right? But yeah. 11 of our top 64 is a pretty big amount. Up next, seven. Seven mono black aggro. This deck will never leave. Uh, and one one of those seven is a vampire deck. Six Jeskai Luka decks. Another powerful strategy. Four four color Omnath. Four Boros burn slash wizard style decks. Four Esper control. Three Rack deck, two, three Nymph to Light, three Lotus Combo, three Gruel, three Orzov Auras, three Demir Control, 13 other decks. I think this is a pretty cool looking Pioneer metagame. I mean, the, the increase of Oops All Spells decks is a little bit scary, but I, I mean, I do think that a deck like this has some pretty glaring weaknesses, right? Like this, this is the kind of deck I think that has no way to lose. And I think that it's, it's a thing, it's something that people can combat against. I like seeing, you know, there's a there's a mix of different style of aggro decks. There's some control style decks. A four color Omnath is sort of a ramp mid-range deck. I don't know. It's like it's it's fine, right? Yeah, this looks all right. So is is the secret to beating oops all spells just like Graft Digger's Cage? Yeah, that would work, right? Or Leyline of the Void. Yeah, I mean just like where's the Leyline of the Voids in this format? Uh Graft Digger's Cage will work fine. Totally fine. Put that down on like a you know, turn 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 one or turn two. What do you think is uh, the best deck in Pioneer right now? Uh, green Planeswalkers. <laughs> Not Is It in Soul? <laughs> oh, man, I wish. I want to go back in time to those uh, to those decks, Stan. No, I mean, it's a good question. I think that right now, I mean, I think Oops All Spells is a lot of apparent power. I didn't think that I would be seeing this, but also the build changed pretty quickly, as I expected. I didn't expect it to change in this fashion at all, to be honest with you. I'm I, I'm I'm so interested in testing this again and trying to see like what like Yorian is adding to this. Like I might be missing some kind of like blink synergies that are doing something. Um, I don't know. I can't really answer that question, Stan. I haven't been I haven't been playing enough, and the metagame shifts so quickly that I think that the the answer is is unknown. Hmm. But I think that I think that Mono Black Aggro is the most consistent deck we've seen in Pioneer throughout almost its entire existence as a format, right? Totally. And so I think that's that's pretty cool. Like if you like that style of deck, I think you're never going to be playing a bad deck um, right now. Yeah, it's it's almost like humans. You know what I mean? Like it's just kind of like this aggressive creature-based strategy. With disruption. With like a little bit of disruption that's very on plan. And it just like sticks around no matter what. 
Yeah. I mean, it's our, it's our Mutavault deck too, right? Like this is like, this is our Mutavault deck and Mutavault's a very good card still. So yeah, I don't know. I think, I think Pioneer, I mean, it's not as diverse as modern. I think that there are you know, potential issues in the format, of course, but right now I think there's no reason not to play it. If you like, if you like a little bit more battlefield, a little bit longer time to set your game plan up, to, you know, your games to go into later turns more than modern might. So have some fun. You know what? I think I might, but we're not talking about pioneer this week, Stan, not directly, not directly. We're talking about a lot about modern and I want to open up this to you. So let's, let's take a quick break. You ready for a quick break? Yeah, I'll, I'll drink some water. <sighs> let's hydrate. Let's rest. And we'll come back and talk about, you know, maybe the, the unifying theory of good magic formats. Stay with us. Hey, Shane, have you noticed this yes. common refrain lately, especially within the magic community? YOLO. But even from strangers on the street, that not only is modern very good right now, but is, in fact, perhaps the best format available to Magic players today. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially when you <laughs> when you look at what you're comparing it with, right? I mean, not not to not to dog other other the other formats, but you know, standards caught a lot of bands this year and last year. Pioneer hasn't necessarily recovered super well from the the doldrums of the combo meta. I think a lot of people really have taken solace in like the relative consistency, relative sort of fun factor of uh, modern this year. Mm-hmm. Does that align with your experience playing Magic too? Yeah, mostly I think. Like I got to be honest with you, I haven't really touched standard this much this year. And then even I wasn't even, of course, getting to the LGS after uh, novel Corona has become a global pandemic. There's the arena's right there, right? Like arena's there. It's taunting me. It's saying, "Launch me, baby!" And I'm like, "Nah," because I see what's happening in standard. I see these bands. I don't want to get invested into the next the next best deck, right? I don't want to say, "Oh, okay, well, what's going to happen in standard next?" And so it's like. The, the the environment that Watsi has been cultivating this this huge power level has to get banned out over and over and over again isn't something that I really want to be involved in um and so yeah like I think that modern has exemplified a lot of the things that I think make magic good and that's what we're going to talk about a lot in this episode right is like what are the factors that make various formats enjoyable when someone talks about a format they're enjoying, you know, what are the things that go into that? I think modern has the elements that for me make it fun, right? Like I think the formats of course still really fast and, but I think it's, I think it's the best mix of what makes magic fun. And again, again, I think we'll talk about that later on this episode. Last question for you before we kind of dive into the, the meat and potatoes. Is there anything? I love potatoes. Me too. I had them in my omelet tonight. I miss the potatoes at Taco Bell. Are they gone for good? I think so, yeah. <sighs> Maybe we can sign a petition. I don't know. But h- here's my question. Change.org, baby. So it's it's made so many differences in my life. <laughs> they brought back Family Guy. All right. H- here's what I want to know, though. Is there anything specific about Modern or maybe elsewhere in Magic that is bringing you back to games like week over week? Like something that you really love doing, cards, decks, whatever, maybe the format, something that like you just love so much that you kind of want to be in that space 
and you fire up Geo or arena because of it you know i think it depends on the day and also that a lot of i mean our podcast plays into that right and i think that's one of the thing, reasons i like one of the reasons i like doing this podcast you know one of them stan is that we get to play so many different kinds of decks right so like one week we're testing out like weird oops all spells decks the next we're checking out like oh what's this four color uro ramp control type strategy looking like let's revisit dredge you know let's look at gift storm of all things do you know what i mean it's just like i think that there's so many options like maybe i might want to ramp into karn the great creator and then like shut down my opponent's game plan or maybe i want to have a busted dredge opener and like dodge hate it's like having some options is good and i think that's the that's the biggest advantage modern has right i think over the other formats is like hey here's a smorgasbord of decks for you to play with yeah i I feel that lately for me it's and, and this is often the case for me and i'm kind of grateful to have that right now is like i have fallen in love with something that i love to do and have a lot of fun doing it over and over and over again it happens to be geist of saint traff and mall of the skyclave but, you know, a month ago, it was Prowess Creatures, I think. I don't remember what I was playing a month ago. I think a month ago, I was just buying Double Masters cards. But enough about us. This episode is really about modern and magic at large. And for today's show, we want to try diving a little deeper into what makes modern feel like such an oasis right now. Is it actually as good as it usually is, but simply not being outshined by something that's flashy happening elsewhere? Or is something specific actually going on that contributes to the format's appeal? And maybe this is something that we can even extrapolate and apply as a criteria to other formats as a measure of fun and health elsewhere. So keen listeners might recall a brief conversation from our bonus where Shane talked to Patrick Sullivan, SCG mainstay, about game design. And in that episode, Sullivan shared his personal criteria for what makes a format good. And I was re-listening to that and it stood out to me, but it was actually a pretty short brief aside. Uh, It was only a few seconds or a few minutes long in an otherwise dense episode. But to start today's conversation, I think we can look at some of the bullets that he provided and see what we can apply a more empirical lens to and ultimately see how much we can try to provide a measurement based on the data available to us from Wizards of the Coast and and maybe in some cases other formats as well. So to start, Sullivan signs of a healthy format from bonus episode nine. We should probably put a link to that episode in the show notes. If you haven't heard it, look at the description of this episode. Maybe it'll be in there. So Sullivan, the first criteria he shares with us is diversity. And this notion that there's a variety of deck archetypes available to players. And I think ideally a variety of deck archetypes that feel competitively viable. And he sort of, you know, added to that, can a pet deck keep up or or maybe just tune itself to the format? And I think modern feels like the perfect format to ask this question about because by design it's sort of meant to be this place where players can theoretically have a deck for a relatively long time that they can master and eventually foil out. Often that that deck is Jund. You have to foil it. If you don't, you're not a true Paper Magic player. <laughs> yeah, if you don't foil out your deck, do you really know mid-range? I mean, I, pre- I appreciate that. You know what's funny, though, is even... I don't think Joe foiled out his Jund deck. I don't think so either. And he and he's a big... I mean, all Chicago Jund players have to foil out eventually. That's what I've learned. Many of them do. Sullivan's second criteria is good gameplay. Is the format one note? 
or can you utilize a variety of strategies to solve problems within a metagame? And earlier this year, we saw the consequences of what I would call a one-note format in Pioneer, where the top three or four decks were all combo strategies. And if you love playing combo or combo mirrors or, or maybe just racing your opponent every match, perhaps like that era of Pioneer was your Xanadu. But for people who want to practice you know, their favorite aggro, control, or mid-range decks, it felt like Pioneer at that time was an unwelcoming and perhaps discouraging environment for a whole slew of players. One of Sullivan's other criteria was different incentives. So does the card pool, metagame, or potentially other forces offer good reasons to play decks across different archetypes? In other words, are there good reasons to play aggro over control while at the same time you have reasons to play mid-range over aggro while at the same time you have good reasons to play control over mid-range? I almost see this question as how close is the format to actually being something like rock, paper, scissors? Well, so I want to I interject now, though. So do you think that like that's a good thing? Having a rock, paper, scissors type format is an, is an advantage and a characteristic of a good format? Well, I think we'll go into that a little bit, but it's better than having a format where rock always wins. Well, I mean, green, black, mid-range does always win. People are just afraid to play a deck so powerful. They don't want to get Dark Confidant banned. Yeah, it's hard to tell whether Lura should be in the main or the side. Well, what do you think? Like, isn't Paper, Scissor, Rock, like, if people have a reason to play their paper decks or a reason to play their scissors decks... These are all real decks, I, as I'm saying this out loud. Like, yeah. isn't that better than it just kind of being like, oh, there's that rock player again. Guess I can't play my scissors deck ever because rock is everywhere. Everyone always picks rock. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's like a good shorthand for saying that that you're going to face a lot of different decks and that you're going to have some natural weaknesses in your deck and natural strengths in your deck against other parts of the meta and then one of the i think the reasons that people play magic is then predicting the meta game looking at the meta game making important tech choices in their deck in their sideboard and then saying hey um, i can shore up my weaknesses in ways that are actually matter and i think that that's all kind of how i see like rock paper scissors where there's enough there's enough flatness in the power level that it allows these decks to reveal themselves beautifully said i'm glad you interjected there all right and sullivan's last criteria were untapped possibilities does the card pool appear deep enough that something unexpected can potentially still emerge or is every tournament occupied by some of the same strategies ideally i think people want to be able to brew solutions to solve recurring problems this is really important I think this is perhaps the most important thing in a format like modern and even as format like standard, like good standards, I think are ones where people can say there's always some, there's something in there. There's something in these cards that allows me to succeed, whether that's following a banning in sort of the last year and a half, two years of standard where it's like, okay, there's something here next or to fight against the initial high power level decks that exist right and then in a format like modern it should be almost expected that we have the possibility to say what's there let's oh oh there's grand abolisher why have we not been trying this in this white combo deck do you know what I mean like oh there's new like luminarch aspirant is a new card or sky cave apparition is a new card so there's a combination of what do new cards bring to the table 
immediately? And then what possibilities does that open that have been you know untapped for now? Or what are the possibilities that allow me to say, tweak something that's been around and make it even better because of the card depth we have and the power level that we have? And I think that that is one reason people really like modern this this year, and I'll talk about that for sure. I think is like people are people are brewing like crazy this year. Mm-hmm. I think or we're cooped up at home, but like even look at that black green elves deck. You know that deck was like almost sort of dead this year. Barely any elves decks in like five O leagues. Certainly not a lot in top thirty twos. I would have noticed them. Yeah, and here we are. Yeah, elves, it's, it's elves top has not eight. been much of a thing. Yeah. So let's try to measure some of these criteria that Sullivan provided for us. And, and maybe even see what other questions or criteria can emerge. And I have really good news. I got to make some pivot tables for this episode. Oh my gosh, thank you. It's the best. All right. I want to start with diversity. Because not only do I think it informs maybe every other section, but in developing this episode and topic, I've sort of come to what may be an obvious conclusion that this is at the heart of how we identify good formats. Oh yeah, for sure especially a format like modern. And and I think you're right, Stan, it's like diversity, diversity doesn't really stand alone. It's a facet of almost all of the other things that we just talked about, right? Like, so of course it fits into diversity, but like it, it provides incentives, it provides, it provides the possibilities, you know what I mean? And so, and, and, and it, I think that it also is a major factor into what people consider good gameplay. And I, and of course, I think that we'll sort of diagnose what good gameplay really means, at least to us. But yeah, diversity is like the fundamental, right? But is, is diversity, do you think like a cause or an effect Right. You know what I mean? Like is is diversity is diversity a, a symptom of like a good you know what I mean? Like sure. I'm with you so far. Yeah, di- diversity is a consequence of good format stewardship. I thought diversity was an old wooden ship from the Revolutionary War. It probably is. It's a schooner. So, you know, see what I'm saying, right? It's like a format like modern doesn't get diverse just because if you throw all the cards there, right? Like the format like modern has been curated and monitored and kept taken care of pretty well by wizards over the past few years. And so the, and then the result of that is that people have the opportunity, I think, to play a diverse range of decks and types of decks. Yes. I think I know what you're saying. Like modern's card pool lends itself to diversity, but it the format still needs to be nurtured to maintain that diversity to prevent something overpowered from homogenizing it, essentially. Yeah, like I mean, just last week we talked about like faithless looting. And and we all love different faithless looting decks, but Dave is right in that. It just sort of, like you said, homogenized the format around broken graveyard strategies. And then ultimately, the format, I think, is better off for not having a card as powerful as Faithless Looting in it and forces people to use other enablers that aren't quite as good to to enact their strategies. And in doing so, then opens up a lot of opportunities for other decks to succeed, other decks that maybe can't run the same type of hate or the same type of antagonistic strategies and things like that. And I think that that is kind of, that's underappreciated in a lot of ways is when you remove something, what doors does that open for other people and other types of players and other types of strategies? So while we try to measure diversity, I'm going to try taking a look at an apparent tier one in modern today. And for the sake of this exercise, I'm specifically focusing on decks that have made top eight 
in Magic Online events since the release of Zendikar Rising, but it does not include the decks from the breakdown we talked today, because when I did these notes, we didn't have those lists yet. So sorry, sorry, John, you haven't made it. Well, it, it actually did, but like, nope, elves did not. That's oh, too bad. It is too bad. So in total, across all the formats, since Zendikar Rising was added to Magic Online, we have 64 decks across top eights. Nice. N equals 64. Um, th- did you look at this little secret mystery thing that I, I, I added here? Oh, yeah. I scrolled over that spoiler text. So if you had to guess, how many total archetypes do you think existed in the 64? So by an archetypes, you meant like Jund or Taxes or something exactly. like that. Like, yeah. I think I would have guessed like somewhere around a, th- a third. Like, so I probably would have guessed like 21 or 20 or something like that. But it's 26. It's 26. It's 26. That's good. That's great. That's more than I guessed. It's, it's That's practically half. Half of tier one. I mean, that's great. I mean, that's, that's, that's only, I mean, that's eight top eights. So in eight events, we had 26 different decks show up in top eights. Like that, I feel like if we went back in time and did this, let's say two years ago, like when maybe when we started this podcast, right? Like the, the Is It Phoenix era, uh, I don't think we would have seen that same number. I don't know if we would have either. Let's do that for science. I'm not going to lie. And this is, again, just like our apparent tier one right now. Like if you start looking at tier two, if you start looking at 5-0 dumps, if you start looking at prelim results, you know, the extended top 32s, that number grows. And I think that's part of the appeal of modern is you have all these different decks. But we still have a most popular deck too in our sample size of 64, which was perhaps not surprisingly the Uro pile. And in this case, I did kind of roll in like the black Uro deck and the white Uro deck. So like the Sahili and the more controlling versions, anything that might be an Uro pile and MTG Goldfish fits in here. But again, even though this is the most popular archetype, only 11 copies across our 64 top eight decks. Already not too bad. I also broke out all these decks into what I call super types. So aggro, combo, control, and mid-range. Among these super types, aggro was in fact the most popular. 22 aggro decks, nine different archetypes. So that's like humans, burn, prowess, etc. Combo had 11 decks across six archetypes. Control appeared 17 times across five archetypes and mid-range 14 times across six archetypes. So it's a little tricky to apply a numerical value to this, but if you look at all the decks in each super type, you can find, in fact, all five colors represented in each group. And the caveat here is that the only control decks playing red in this version of tier one are certain iterations of Europile, but that's not necessarily the case if you expand your point of view and you start looking at those five O leagues or the top 32s at large, you might find like blue red control, for instance. Yeah, like sort of a, a just guy control with, uh, you know, like aspiring spike has been running recently or something like that. Exactly. And, and really, the reason I bring up this whole point about colors is that if you're a player seeking the center of a certain Venn diagram, I would maybe argue that the current season of modern has options for you in competitive viable decks. Yeah, like I think this is this is almost exactly what I would predict. Do you know what I mean? Like I think these numbers might have been a few here and here and there different, but like, you know, I would say 
I think modern is a faster format, so it lends itself more towards like aggressive styles. But of course, there's people who always love playing their control decks or their combo decks. The mid range is actually the most surprising to me. I'd be curious to see what sort of slotted into uh, that number. But I think that's, I mean, does that seem really good, Stan? Like nothing seems overbearing here. Like combo is not like 35 of the 64 or something like that. And I, I think generally people want the ability to play combo, but people don't always want to be facing down combo all the time. I think that this seems like kind of like the the dream here. Like where it's like, you know, I can, like you said, I can play whatever I want and have a chance for success. And I can play different archetypes within aggressive. I can play nine, you know, nine different aggressive decks Mm -hmm. are doing well here. Six different combo decks. You know, that's, those are good numbers. Well, when I say you can play whatever you want, what I'm trying to say is if you want to play like a green aggro deck, you have an affinity for green and you like playing aggressive creature strategies, there's an option like that for you. What I'm not saying is you can play Band Spirits and be easily immediately successful unless you're really good at spirits do you want to know what uh what those mid-range decks are what i classified as mid-range all right yeah so we got death and taxes we got ponza jund niv to light orzov stoneblade and green white titan not amulet titan but the green white version specifically Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so that's what i put into the mid-range strategy just for the sake of conversation yeah I mean, I think people could take random different bits of umbrage at certain categorizations here, but I think for the sake of for the sake of illustration, I think it's probably all fair. You know, what I mean, it's not it's not like mid range is going to go down to two decks and one archetype mm-hmm. type thing if you remove a few of them. All right, so so that's one way of looking at diversity. I've I've, I've stated my case, <laughs> and you thought it was good. Yes, good diversity, diversity, good. Like in terms of just raw deck appearance, good. Next, Sullivan offered good gameplay as another sign of healthy format, which I thought was a pretty curious addition since it's a very subjective concept. What is good? And it really depends on a player's own biases. You know, I think the decks they find appealing or the formats they enjoy might reflect what a person thinks is good magic. So what are some different types of gameplay that are available to us in general? One that we talk about all the time is decisions. And really, what kind of choices do you have or, or really get to make? And I wanted to try to break up decisions or styles of the decision options you have as categories of different forms of gameplay. So one is games where every decision matters. Yeah, And I think this is the one that we actually talk about the most, which is it's a way of saying that the average game is yours to win or lose meaning it's not decided by who's on the play. It could also mean that outcomes aren't entirely decided by paper, scissor, rock relationships. I also think this is a a style of gameplay where experienced players can outplay developing players. And likewise, players can be rewarded for good mulligan or sideboarding choices. So ultimately, you get to make choices based on your opponent's plan as opposed to playing with simply tunnel vision. So far, so good. Yeah, I think it's... Yeah, I think this kind of gets back to the paper, scissors, rock thing earlier that I was kind of like, well, you know, I don't think people really want to exist in a, in, a, in a world where it's like, oh, I'm playing aggro. I will lose to every mid-range deck. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, or I'm playing control. I will lose to every aggro deck because aggro decks are so good in the format and my answers don't exist very well. You know, they don't exist that allow me to have more than a 10% shot type thing. I think that 
because of the nuances and options and different control strategies. Like it could be a batter skull deck where it's like, okay, like I'm going to stick batter skull and I'm likely going to be able to stop an aggressive strategy mo- much of the time, unless they, you know, unless they are packing their artifact hate or have some skull crack type effects or something like that. Right. And I think that's kind of the nuance that gets interesting where it's like, sure, there are, categories of paper categories of scissor categories of rock but within those there is there are more pointy scissors and there are you know duller rock yes duller rocks and uh rougher or smoother papers or something i don't know yeah so that's one one side of the coin the other side of the coin i think is where only your decisions matter and this is what i think people are sometimes referring to when they talk about ships passing in the night and i think this is what happened to pioneer for a chunk of 2020 when the average matchup was combo versus combo yeah i mean i have a little bit of an issue with this because like i think something like demir inverter was really like a control strategy and it didn't reward just trying to combo off and spewing your stuff to the board and i think the better players would outplay a lot of people with a strategy like that which is why it was so good right like that's like a twin Mm -hmm. it's like i'm going to be a really good control player and then have some instant wins but i do hear what you're saying right which is like we don't we we don't want to have an uninteract, uninteractive format and interactivity is one of the biggest argument causing words in magic right where it's like oh what does interactive mean does it mean like i play fatal push or something like that yeah but i think that yeah pe- people people aren't keen on that idea for sure but in, even with the case of demir inverter like wouldn't you agree that that deck was only winning through its combo eventually like it played control for x amount of the game and then eventually yes. it would turn the corner and just combo off it wasn't winning with like mutavault beats or an, an inverter beating down inverter did beat if it needed to type thing but yeah you're right i think a lot of people just scoop too in that situation we're like well like they have a resolved inverter and like three counter spells in hand or something like that mm-hmm. But we don't have to think about that anymore, thankfully. Yeah, thankfully we don't. And and in these environments where only your decisions matter, I think this is the type of gameplay that, in fact, rewards potential archetype masters, where the bulk of your decisions revolve around things like sequencing, mulligans, sideboarding, and even deck or card selection. And it's not just combo-heavy formats either. You know, hyper-aggressive or fast formats can fit this mold too. Um, for instance, I believe we saw a lot of this when Hogak was legal and modern, and the tier one was basically like Hogak versus Dredge versus Prowess. And Faithless Looting was literally legal. And Is It Phoenix was basically unplayable. It was dark times. I don't want to go back to that. Me neither. So those are the two. You got every decision matters versus your decision matters. I was trying to think of examples where no decisions matter. I literally could not. <laughs> no decisions matter. And people wouldn't play Magic. Do you know what I mean? They, they would like play roulette or something exactly yeah i think at that point you're just gambling you're just opening booster packs moving back a little bit to good gameplay i love good gameplay me too and i think it kind of comes down to is the gameplay the same within each super type and this doesn't actually come up a lot but i think in a good format you can have two versions of mid-range or six versions of mid-range that look nothing like each other same for aggro or combo or control yeah to me, this is like the next level of deck diversity, which is the diversity within gameplay. So our biggest super type, aggro in modern right now, has nine decks, let's say, give or take. But they're far from nine versions of the same deck. You know, we have two copies of Burn and two copies of Jund Shadow in this tier one breakdown. Likewise, we have humans that wants to turn creature sideways after playing to the board, or we have Blitz, which wants to turn creature sideways after playing to the stack. We also see the same thing in combo, where you have these green-white Heliod decks that 
play to the board and create an infinite loop that wins on the spot unless it's disrupted. And next to that, we have Oops All Spells, which is like this graveyard synergy deck that literally wins with attackers, but actively needs to combo off to do that. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's that's important, right? Where it's like, and I kind of mentioned this earlier, where it's like, hey, I, I'm an aggressive player. Do you know what I mean? Like Shane, Shane, Shane Beeps is a, usually an aggressive player. And I have enjoyed different ways to do that where it's like, Hey, I might want to play a burn deck because like, I want to figure out how to get damage in and then finish people off with, with burn spells or top deck that borrows charm and win in that fashion. That's really fun. I might want to have a synergistic aggressive plan where it's like, Hey, like I'm sequencing these humans in like a easy and fun way, but along the way I'm providing some disruption where like I'm bouncing that important creature with reflector mage or like violing in that deputy of detention and snagging someone's uh primeval titan or something like that or they think that you're dead and it's it's fun to have different options to do the same thing where it's not just like hey you know the de facto aggro deck in modern is not burn anymore do you know what i mean yeah it's kind of like saying if i want to play mid-range i don't have to play thoughtseize and for some people that means something but let's bring this back right like what's good gameplay and i think the point is that all gameplay is good when all gameplay is viable. And it's easy to fall into this trap where every game fits into the bucket of every decision matters and applying that as shorthand to format quality. But this does potentially ignore the players that want to go all in on a combo or racing their opponents with burn spells. And to me, sort of the conclusion that I've come to in, in, in this conversation is that a healthy, welcoming format probably isn't one that pigeonholes players into a single way of thinking and playing. Yeah, and I think that's another reason people want to play something like modern over perhaps standard, right? Where I think standard, the opportunities offered there are to say like, you know, when I play standard, it's like here's my red, here's my red deck, right? And here's here's the best aggro deck in the format, and I'm going to play this hundreds of games on Magic Arena. Like when I did play, it's like you know I had I had like a stat tracker, and I really got good at like knowing how to sequence my spells and how to sequence my creatures and what to look for off the top of my deck and how to mulligan and becoming expert in that is is definitely an appealing thing I think for some players. But then with modern like we were getting at before it's like saying hey I don't have to if I don't want to mm-hmm. only play aggro in this way. I don't only have to play mid-range in this way. I only can play control with this esper control build right now there's just so many different cards and different strategies and different tech pieces and the changing metagame pretty much requires people to change the way they approach the format and i think that's that's a strength for players who want to be able to do similar things in different ways right like you know you might say i'm a control player but you have five different viable ways to approach that and that's that's fun and exciting and cool where it keeps your interest for a long period of time. Your point about standard versus moderate also just made me realize something that I hadn't even considered until right now, which is in modern, you can potentially play two different types of decks, archetypes or super types with some of the same cards. Like you can have your scalding tarns in a control deck and play Uro piles or blue moon or you can have your scalding tarns in a prowess style deck and go fast and play aggressively 
And I think there's something to that too, that not only do you have like diversity in your gameplay and diversity in archetypes, but you even have diversity in the application of the cards you physically own. Oh yeah. Cool. All right. (laughs) Agreed. Stan, I feel like a lot of what we've been talking about is sort of leading to concepts of like incentives. Like why, why are people playing different formats at all, right? Like what are the ways that people are engaging with standard, with pioneer, with modern? And I think that modern does have some unique incentives that it offers, especially. Totally. And sometimes it even offers incentives to like play a deck outside of tier one because it doesn't mean you're going to automatically lose either. So right now our most represented tier one archetype is Uro Pile. And yeah, does this mean that everyone should be playing Uro if they want to win? Probably not. I think we have data that that's not necessarily the case. And likewise, what's the difference between this moment with Uro and what we lived through last year when, when Hogak was legal? And to me, in terms of incentives, as and I think about and as I think about this concept, I believe it's a combination of a variety of answers might inform incentives, as well as the competitive viability of those alternative options. So the fact that Uro has bad weeks and that it's not an auto win and it yeah. and it doesn't create these untenable game states on turn one or two, I believe is actually a feature of the format. Yeah, like you're not you don't lose to Uro, Uro before like the, the game has even begun. Do you remember against Hogak? You frequently had to beat them with your opening hand just by having double ley line. And often a turn one path to exile was literally too slow against that deck. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what I was talking about, right? It's like there, of course, are decks where you really need your hate or you're not going to do too well against them. But against something like Hogak, you're right, where it's like, okay, you, you're going to lose this game more often than not simply because the raw power inherent in the strategy. Right. And, and you didn't have your answer in your opening hand. And like turns two onward literally didn't matter. It was, it was a dark time. But this section isn't about Uro specifically, though. <laughs> we will talk about problematic cards eventually. I think when we consider incentives, what we're asking is, can players develop strong reasons to play cards, colors, or decks that aren't the apparent best deck in a format. Oh yeah. I mean, there's there's sentimentality, there's metagaming, there's uh identification with certain like cards and strategies. We we talk about a lot of these things all the time, right? Yeah. But but moreover than that, like from a more competitive perspective, like Oh yeah, I guess people do like to win. Yeah, th- there's there's a spikes incentive to stray from the so-called boogeyman. And one of those incentives, I think, is that you can play something powerful that tier one cannot do, that that the cards or decks don't have access to. So, for example, Ad Nauseam was absent from our current season's tier one bucket. It was it was present in like top 32s and, and the 5-0 dumps, but it wasn't in any top eight challenge results. But it's still powerful because it operates on this very unique axis that can blindside unpre- unprepared players. It potentially has the the capability of top eighting a tournament it could even win a tournament we've seen it do that this year it certainly has everything it takes to spike a league but at the same time you can even play something that's designed to attack the top of the meta too yeah without participating in whatever the so-called tier one is and you know these decks designed to attack the meta they tend to be a bit more fleeting and i think some recent examples 
we can think of our bogles or counterbalance, which are strategies that can in and of themselves be perhaps easily hated out, but may then also spike a tournament during a brief window of opportunity. Yeah, I think people get a lot of pleasure on doing this sometimes because it makes people feel like smart and like exhibit like their metagaming strategy. Like it's like, oh, yeah, it was a great weekend for Bogles. I just brought it out and I just, I, yeah, tore through it. Like no one even came at me. And it's like, oh, yeah, like you can always do that. Like there's always a strategy like that where it's like, yeah, you weren't expecting me. And here I am. So what about if you have in your possession, in your physical possession, one or two decks that you love playing hell or high water, but they're not among the tier one archetypes? And even let's make it a little more interesting. Let's say that they're very fair and you're not playing them to spike a metagame. You just love playing Blue Moon or Elves. And I think here, as long as we're considering the incentives that these decks may potentially provide, the key incentive is the availability of answers. So either main deck or sideboard cards that provide solutions to powerful other strategies or even broader metagame forces. Yeah, I think that's important, mainly because the power level is high in in formats like modern and pioneer and the thing that's valuable about the card depth of modern is that there are are tools in different colors or different like creature types or something like that right and some are better than others like you know red is going to have like a shatter effect Mm -hmm. that another color might not and white is going to have a a taxing effect or a sweeper effect that other colors might not get the same advantage, you know, advantage of having, but there are a lot of options and a lot of different colors where people can not feel truly helpless in a lot of ways. Like maybe it's an artifact or maybe it's a ley line where you don't even need to be in that color. Right. So if every deck can find a card or maybe a couple cards that can help them beat a specific target, there's this other level to that. Like if you found that answer, do you have to run it at a cost? Are you setting yourself back by having cards in the 75? Does the answer dilute your plan or can it potentially even provide value along with its utility? So are you playing an answer because it helps you win or are you only playing it because it helps you not lose? Which is a pretty nuanced like consideration that I think sometimes people may even overlook when they're sideboarding with their best decks. And to be fair, not losing is sometimes good enough. Like Aethergust is not a win condition. It's kind of sort of a time walk and it being playable in and of itself isn't a symptom of a problem even though it's essentially printed to be a sideboard card in my opinion but on the other hand when mono red prowess was playing four leyline of the void to beat hogak or when nearly every deck started maining surgical extraction to combat is it phoenix that's when you start to wonder is this actually an incentive or is this just a concession to something happening that's bigger than us and i think this is one of the reasons why people really love skyclave apparition right now there's an incentive to play it because it's a threat, but it's also an answer that happens to line up nicely with the format at large as, as we know it today. Sure. You know, it can answer Uro, it can answer Blood Moon, and it can carry a sword, and it can help you win against a bunch of other strategies too. I mean, that's something that we've talked about too, where it's like, hey, it was easy to compare this to like Deputy of Detention without, re- without remembering that Apparition is in Mono White, mm-hmm. and Deputy was like a Azorius card. And so now you can just say like, hey white colored decks or white X decks that are not Azorius now have a, a more interesting sort of you know exile effect that is semi-permanent. Totally. And I think in an ideal state, good formats have apparitions in basically every color. 
And and they don't always look like creatures, right? Sometimes it's just lightning bolt or cling to dust or even Vela Summer. And likewise, sometimes they're colorless, like Damping Sphere or Tormod's Crypt. Although I guess those aren't threats. But there are answers that anyone can run that in some cases can support your plan or even uh, stymie your opponent's plans. I mean, I'll tell you what, yeah, like if you're playing a deck that doesn't want to see Damping Sphere or has to play around a Tormod's Crypt, they look like threats. Totally. <laughs> For sure. Totally. And sometimes you can play these cards main deck like Apparition, and sometimes you really shouldn't like Aether Gust. But as long as you have this diverse suite of answers, and they include tools that can generally support a deck, that's going to encourage people to play and hopefully provide even enough incentive to register their favorite deck, even if it's not one of the top eight mainstays in a given season. All right, Sullivan's last point. And we're still on those, huh? Yeah, untapped possibilities. And, and you mentioned that this one was your favorite. Yeah. Basically asking how often do new decks emerge that can win games or even spike tournaments? A lot. It seems that way. (laughs) You know, the thing about modern is that the format is so deep with so many decks across its history that for something truly novel to emerge, I sometimes feel like it requires a new set of cards to come out. But sure. But that's not like a discouraging reason not to brew. And frankly, a new deck doesn't have to be something that suddenly makes use of old draft chaff to provide a novel spin in a previously familiar archetype. We saw a great example of that in the breakdown with elves. Yeah. Another great example in the current tier one is green, white Titan. Yeah. It's it's yeah. That, I mean, that's like a deck out of left field. You know what I mean? Where it's like, Hey, uh, I'm going to make Titan potentially even better because we have this new tool in dryad and let's think of ways to use this powerful enabler in a way that doesn't necessarily have to just be, Hey, we have amulet Titan with dryad, right? No, now we have just, we have a a deck that works in a different fashion. Yeah. Now we have Eladomri's call in a toolbox deck that also happens to have Titan and dryad and apparently Elvish Reclaimer. Yeah, I mean, and that makes me think of stuff like, you know, we see Aspiring Spike do this a lot. Well, he'll be like, I think Counterbalance is sick right now, right? So, like, my control deck is going to be Counterbalance-based. I'm going to have some Miracles in there. Uh, I'm I'm really hyped on uh, Jeskai now because I have this new land destruction spell I can take advantage of. I think it's going to work well with these other cards. And and that's what I think is interesting because it's like, hey, uh, we have these established archetypes and we get new tools like you mentioned. And so we can we can tweak things and and test things. And people are very interested in doing that because there's always the potential that it's more powerful than what people have been doing. Right. Right. Or it can attack what people are doing day in and day out. Yeah. Yep. I wonder sometimes if it's a bit of a double-edged sword too. Because on one hand, you can look at this as signs that people have to go deep into the well to find ways to beat tier one, which does not feel great. And it sometimes even creates issues with like price spikes or card availability. Counterbalance, perfect example of that. But on the other hand, it could also be a sign that the field is so open that brewers get to develop novel ideas to achieve competitive success, which I think most people would agree is closer to an ideal state of a magic format, where it's not the primary indicator of a healthy format, but it's another heuristic in our art arsenal in in assessing formats or metagames. Mm-hmm. And when we see these weird new brews or unexpected iterations, uh, which appear every once in a while, it's just another sign that format diversity 
can help keep people excited or even get new players to participate. Yeah. Like I mentioned earlier, I think that I think that this is a constant pull for people to get back into the format or to continue exploring the format or maintain interest in it. Like whether that's whether that's Pioneer or Modern or Commander or anything like that, right? It's like how what is what are my iterative options here or what are my completely off the wall options? And I think that that is something that large formats particularly have an advantage over more narrow ones like like standard typically. Um, though I do think, Stan, after all this sort of like talking about what makes something really good is you know, the size of a format and the contemporary card design stuff that we've been talking about uh, over like last week, especially is right. Like there's some crazy cards that are in this format. Right. And like and the format is fast. There are some cards that if you don't deal with, they take over the game, right? Like Uro or Omnath or Charbelcher or like, you know, Allosaurus Rider or Primeval Titan, right? Like right. maybe in like there's cards like that people have complained about or, or had on their soft ban, you know, ban list like Metamorphos or Bobble or even like Renin Six or Urza, like before it got nerfed uh, heavily uh astrolabe that had to get banned out of the format right it's like there's a, there's there's cards at at different like apparent power levels like you know there's there's small things that make big differences and there's big things that make big differences right but i think you know we can sit here and say like hey uh these cards do see play and they're legal for now right like but do you like what do you think allows a format to be good even when certain cards that might be way too good for standard or way too good for even pioneer um what allows them to exist in something like modern and feel fine yeah yeah i think that's something we have to reckon with all the time especially in modern like we talked about how great the format was even right before astrolabe got printed like a lot of people agreed the format felt good but Watsi had data that required Astrolabe to get banned. And I think that's a great example. Like, how do we reckon with these problematic cards in, in a format that's otherwise beloved? And I think it depends on a, a few key factors here, too. You know, one is, what impact do these cards actually have on games? Because a card can be problematic and not particularly impactful in an average tournament or an average match of magic. So I, I was thinking about KCI. Clark, Clark Clan Ironworks literally kept Clark, Clark Cran. God, so glad that they banned that card just because it's impossible to pronounce. Yeah, KCI. Also, it kept your opponent from interacting at all. Like when KCI was going off, they were using this really obscure rule that prevented you from doing any form of interaction because they were like playing with mana, essentially. On the other hand, you had a problematic card in the format Faithless Looting, which you could interact, but it essentially forced everyone to play Graveyard Hate. Sometimes these problematic cards make games go way too long, and sometimes they make the games end way too quickly, or force a certain type of interaction, or just skew the entire metagame. And if responding to a problematic card can support, you know, overall gameplay, something like counting on Path to Exile to answer Uros, or at least provide utility in other matchups, something like Damping Sphere being answers for both Storm and Tron, Maybe we as players are willing to accept a certain level of metagame pressure coming from an individual card or deck. 
depending on the level of impact they really have. It also, I think, depends on like the amount of the metagame that they represent. You know, oh yeah, Neoform, great example of this. Heck of a deck. It can win, I think, turn two, if not turn one. And if it suddenly had a 65 win rate, 65% win rate in non-mirror matches, I think we could reasonably expect Watsi to act on it. Yeah, that would be a lot. But at least in this case right now, the deck is also way too unpredictable to even threaten domination, I think. At least in today's metagame. And the format can even self-correct, and fellow spikes sort of gravitate toward more reliable strategies as a result. Just this this deck yeah. is really fast, but it has also has like a really bad fail state where just sometimes you can do nothing and you mulligan to one card in hand and, and you lose. Or your opponent had a force of negation and you exactly, and you, yeah. you go all in on your neo form and then they force it and you're dead. Here, here's the other one though. Sometimes I think a deck or a card can be problematic if it still has an acceptable matchup spread. Okay. When Hogak or KCI were legal, one of the reasons that they were so problematic, aside from the way that they leveraged busted mechanics or even gaps in the rules, was their sheer power level against the field. Neobrand, on the other hand, has some horrible matchups, as does Uro, as does Belcher. Mm-hmm. So again, we're relying on other good decks to help keep the most broken strategies in check. But I have this feeling that most players agree that that is an easier pill to swallow than everyone playing main deck surgical extractions because of one specific boogeyman. Stan, so what, I, what I'm suddenly thinking about, right, is like, so we're sort of saying like diversity is a cause and an effect, right? Where it's like, okay, so we see a diverse metagame because of, you know, good format stewardship, a lot of cool cards, a lot of good, smart people making decks and stuff like that. And that diversity of good strategies also can keep some strategies in check where it's like, yeah, there's, there's enough, there's enough bad matchups out there that you're going to face and you're going to see. And so you can't say that you can't rely on your busted Neoform combo deck to win 55% of the game. So it's really not worth playing that often. That makes me sort of feel like we're in this, like that old Simpsons, you know, image where it's like the, the, the doctor is saying like, you have so many diseases, (laughs) Mr. Burns. That like, you know, uh, he's like, oh, I'm, I'm invincible. All the diseases trying to get through the door. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, um, you know, oh, oh, so like I'm, I'm, I'm invincible. And he's like, no, like even, oh, even a stiff breeze, invincible. Right. So like, how close, are we close to that here? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, is, is this a, a magical time in which like we're existing where we can say like, hey, this is a, a healthy format. People enjoy playing. People have the opportunity to play what they want, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, what do you think can turn this back in to a bad format or like looking back at, at somewhat recent history and say, this wasn't a good format. Mm, yeah. Like what, what are the risks you think exist? Man, I hate to say it, but I feel like we're always just one set away or one card away from everything falling apart. Like modern horizons too. What's going to break. Mm-hmm. God, I forgot that modern horizons was coming out. I know dude, even the next set might introduce it. Yeah, you never know. I mean, standard had to ban out Omnath. You know what I mean? New new card, new set. The next standard set can have another Oko. Yeah, a multi-format warping card. Right. And at least right now, you know, fortunately, we do have a little bit of a sense of the decks that feel close to the edge. You know, that that might be some versions of Europile. That might be some versions of um, Neobrand, right? We have like 
decks in our radar in the crosshairs. Likewise, let's be real, sometimes something unpredictable can emerge. I don't think anyone was looking at Belcher as like the next thing to break modern when uh, we knew Zendikar was coming back. And yet here we are, we have no land decks that use Belcher all over again. Maybe for the first time in modern, I'm not sure. Yeah, it's like it's it's something that doesn't even have to be a, the power of a single card. It can be the fact that we have, you know, a dozen plus new non-land lands, right? So like that enables a deck like Charbelcher to exist out of the blue in modern. Yeah, it, you know, it's 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 sad that Dave couldn't be here today. So I'm going to channel him for a second. <laughs> because I'm reminded of this comment that he made like many, many, many episodes ago. I literally do not remember the episode it was on. I think it was when I lived in my last apartment, though. So over a year ago, he said that magic is this game that can break. That was it. I, I don't remember yeah. what else he said. But I think on some level, that's sort of the contract that we sign when we immerse ourselves in magic. You know, good times and bad times have this frequent ebb and flow. And on some level, maybe the good times are, in fact, better because we can look back on how bad it was just a few months ago. But let's not overlook that for some players, there's also a genuine appeal to exploiting the most busted stuff <laughs> when formats get out of hand. Sure. And then, you know, is that eventually we resume our day jobs when things even out. In this case, our day job is playing Stoneforge Mystic instead of Hogak. I do wonder, though, Shane, does that ever appeal to you? Like, do you ever get fun or feel inspired playing a broken deck or one that we know is going to get banned? I mean, I guess the closest thing I've played to a, like a broken deck has been like Dredge, perhaps, like it's most powerful. You know, when you're playing against fair decks and, and you just have the ability to, to so consistently enact your strategy that feels pretty good um yeah i think that i think the deck has to fit into my wheelhouse right like i don't even if like let's say storm was like a 58 percent deck right now i don't think i'd still enjoy playing that deck you know i don't i don't think i'd enjoy um doing certain types of combo strategies just because of the way that you have to set them up or the way that they go off or like the way you have to iterate through your deck and graveyard and something like KCI or the, the lock state generation of something like lantern control. There are certain things that I think fit more towards people's play styles. And I think that's, that's one reason that I think some broken decks don't have to necessarily get banned I mean, like, let's say semi-broken, right? Like, let's say, let's say right now, Neo Brand does have like a fifty-four percent win rate, right? That's pretty good. That's like deck that should be seeing a decent amount of play. But I think a lot of people just don't like it. Like, they don't want. Like, people don't like. Let's say Lantern was fifty-three percent, right? I think there's a, there's a certain proportion of players that just doesn't want to go through all that to win. And the incentives we have for a format like modern right now to truly find the best deck don't really exist because we don't have uh, the biggest money in a format like modern necessarily. Uh, and maybe when paper play comes back or something like that, or you know, a, a really large tournament is in modern or in pioneer, we'll see those formats gravitate more towards like, oh, hey, here's the most busted thing you can be doing. Yeah, I, I Neo Brand is so interesting because. We don't really know its win percentage. And I wonder if its win percentage is actually very reasonable or good. 
and people don't play it in higher volume just because they don't like mulliganing that much and they don't like the feeling that they were going to lose no matter what because they didn't have the right opening hand, even if that is actually part of Modern's identity. That even uh, a Ponza hand that looks playable is just never going to win and they and the player plays it out not realizing the fact that they're never going to win. And Neo Brand sort of forces you to come face to face with that reality. This is a little bit cynical. I don't know if that's actually true. Just thinking out <laughs> loud now. All right, let's summarize. We're wrapping up our dive down. I got to say, I feel like Patrick Sullivan gave us a really great framework. And I don't know if that came off the cuff or if it's something that he's had to answer before, but his criteria, diversity, different incentives, good gameplay. Untapped possibilities. It works out. And in some cases, we can even apply like actual data. We can look at all the decks and how they sort of fit into this paradigm. And the formula solves itself yeah you know what it sort of gets at to me stan is like the things that make a format good are all of the reasons people have to play besides winning with the best deck right it's like give me a reason to to play this game that allows me to express myself or play with cards i like or figure out how to out meta the meta or I have the a variety a variety of decks I can play and I expect to play against and like it's it's all these things that's just like I don't just need to win I don't need to be able to identify the best deck and and play it it's because there's not a best deck mm-hmm. and it's because there's a lot of things that allow me to enjoy the game and engage with the game in in ways that aren't just competitive spirit and just fundamental win rates right yeah and i think that that's that's what i like about magic in a lot of ways is the fact that and one of the things i like about modern is the the engagement factor um is multifaceted yeah i would add one caveat to to your point is there might be a best deck but my favorite pet deck can still beat it because I have like a deep enough well of of answers or technology. I can play green black elves and still top eight a modern challenge because there's enough cards for me to use that support my plan and also attack a metagame. So there you have it, folks. Next time you hear someone say, man, modern is so good right now. This is essentially what they're saying, just in in many fewer words. Our casual exploration into the elements that contribute to healthy formats. I do think in some cases, this criteria will have subtle differences depending on the format. You know, our opinion of how many decks constitute a diverse format will be different between modern and standard and limited, but we don't really cover those other formats. So who cares? (laughs) Stan, I want to take a quick break. I mean, we could end right here, but I think it's just us. I've got, a, I think I've got a, at least one quick wind down question for you. Uh, so yeah, let's, let's, uh, when we return, kill some time, qu- quick little Q and a round. Uh, there's no listener questions cause we knew we wouldn't have too much time because we do like to talk, uh, during the dive down segment. So yeah, stay with us. Stan, you're a big you're a big movie you're a big movie fan. You're like a, you're a cinema fan. I love films. Is this an episode of I Love Films? 
I don't know. I wouldn't say like I'm an insanely hardcore like movie person, but I, I mean, you know, like when we talk about movies, I like to talk about movies. Like I, I like to sort of, I like to critique, critique things. I like to analyze things. I like to think about things and think about why I like them or why I think they're good or why I think they're not so good. Right. Yeah. But in order to be, avoid this being like a, Hey, what pop culture are you avo- enjoying right now? kind of like conversation what i want to ask you something a little bit more meta about movies and it's actually on topic with our main uh episode this week what are the things that you think make or break films for you like what are the stress points that have to be navigated successfully in order for you to think like a movie is good or maybe just for for you to enjoy a movie because i think those are two different things yes it's true sometimes i enjoy movies that are objectively bad like i i wouldn't say they have to be well acted or well written because you can have a lot of fun watching something that's pretty trashy. And you think so? I, I mean, I think it's possible. And we see that with like these cult classics, like The Room, for instance. You know, sure. Back in normal times, my art house movie theater down the street, the music box would have a monthly screening of The Room. And like people would show up and throw spoons and, and, and recite the dialogue. I actually hate that movie. <laughs> I I do like Disaster Artist because that was a good movie. But your question, what is it about movies that that I like? Yeah, like well, like what makes a good format? What makes a good movie? Or like what do you? Th- what are the what are the downfalls? I know exactly what it is. I get turned off by movies when my expectations are recited back to me, and I will have I can tolerate in some cases bad writing or bad acting. Or, or bad photography if the movie upends my expectations in real time so today we were talking about the invisible man right we were talking about some horror movies yeah. and, and you kind of like the invisible man and i think your reasons for liking it were valid whereas like everyone's actions made sense based on the information that the characters had before them and right? you, you know that's a, that's a major that's like a major crutch of mine Mm-hmm. Right. Where it's like, I don't like having to suspend disbelief in a variety of ways. Like, do you, it's like the fact that, um, I'm not going to spoil it for anything, but like, you know, the fact that there, something happened that is not necessarily realistic, um, is easy to, it's, it's okay because it made sense. And like, it wasn't like out of left field and it wasn't something that was unexpected necessarily. Right. But go on. I want to, I want to, I ask you the question. Well, well, I'll I'll say this. Like, I think that's an excellent criteria for you and and for anyone really. And sometimes on a case by case basis, I may share that, but that's not my number one because I'm willing to suspend my disbelief if the movie surprises me. And my issue with the invisible man as our example of the day is that everything that I thought was going to happen is what happened. The movie had no surprises. Whereas like it's Halloween, it's a spooky season. One horror movie recently that I loved was Hereditary. And that's because like, I don't need twists in everything I watch. Yeah. 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 Like this, it's not about twists. It's just kind of about, you have certain expectations about how characters will react or how stories will progress, but a good story or good writing, I think can find a novel way to tell a familiar fable. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in in terms of like horror, especially or thriller, like the unexpected is like what's actually frightening. Right. I mean, it's one that's one aspect of fright. It's like I did not expect this to happen. This was this is unnerving. Yeah. Because not only because it was maybe maybe a startle. But it's also like my expectations were were upended. Where where have you seen that in like a non horror movie? Do you think? I I, I love that. That's where you went because I was going to say that exists in comedy too. 
Like, I think a good comedy makes me laugh because I wasn't expecting the joke, either the placement of a joke or the actual, like, the context of a comedic relief will will catch me by surprise. Another one from this year, I fell in love with the show Avatar The Last Airbender when it got added to Netflix. I had never watched it before. And in a lot of ways, it's just like kind of your standard, like, children's cartoon anime inspired fare. And some of the plot beats may be expect, uh, easy to expect if you're kind of familiar with the genre. But I was blown away by the world building of that show. Hmm. It, and like, I did not expect that I was going to embark on like the level of lore and, and world building and mythos that was created in this like 20 minute children's cartoon from the early 2000s on Nickelodeon. So my criteria depends on the the medium that I'm watching and like, my criteria for horror and comedy and cartoons and what have you is always different, but I just want to be surprised and I just want to not remember all the noise in my brain for 20 minutes to two hours. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'd agree in a lot of ways, right? Like I think, I think surprise and unexpectedness is kind of like some of the things that I think make some of the best movies, the best movies, like, like one of the, the experiences that really stands with me. And this is kind of almost cliche at this point, but like in 1999, I was, uh, in, in undergrad. Right. And like, and the matrix, the matrix comes out and then everyone's like, you, you, you only see the trailers and trailers weren't even quite as big of a thing in the late nineties, right? Like no one's like p- pulling up YouTube and watching the latest trailers of every movie that's coming out. Yeah. So you don't have a ton of information on what the matrix is and what it's about. And you go to the theater with your friends and it's a packed house. And, like everything that's happening on the screen is novel. You're like, I, I don't know what the story is. I don't know what's happening. The next thing that's happening is unexpected because like you said, like the world building and the, the premise of the movie was very novel and executed amazingly because of the, the tools that they had and the, and the, the creativity they had. Right. And so I remember looking at my watch and it was like an hour in and I was like, Hold, Oh, thank God. There's only an hour. Like I still have an hour left of this. Yes. And like, I, I so infrequently have experiences like that. And it's so driven by the fact that it's like, I, I don't know what's going to happen next. And I'm excited for it to happen. And that doesn't have to be action. It doesn't have to be sci-fi that can be in like a, a beautifully told story, like, like moonlight, Right. Where it's, where it's like something like something's going to happen next that like is, I don't know, because like this person's life is on like a path that is uncertain. And that's why sort of like the, the closure of it or the, the it's, that's, what's meaningful about it is sort of saying like, Hey, uh, this is both novel and told well and avoids pitfalls of predictability. And I think that's kind of what I, what I heard you say, right? Is like, don't give me something predictable because if it's predictable, I don't need to watch it. Yes. Yes. It's, it's one of the reasons why I often have a hard time with like Marvel cinematic universe movies. Yeah. Or, or other Disney movies, especially like sometimes they feel like they're made in a cookie cutter machine 
and and sometimes they're not like guardians of the galaxy kind of stands out as like this this fun novel approach to like sci-fi superhero action like fantasy Thor ragnarok exactly right because like it defies so many of like the cliches and like is so like weirdly funny at times right or, or batman begins yeah very funny <laughs> you know the way he he closed that well at the end of the movie like gotta close up the old well i hate <laughs> full of bats i'm not wearing hockey pads yeah shane can i That's ask a dark night by the way can i ask you a question yeah you got one minute why do you hate jund so much i don't hate jund yes you do you i don't hate jund you love to knock it down a peg it, well, I, it's not, I, you're that's smiling not i can see it bringing you joy good it's i mean i don't want to yuck people's yums necessarily but it's a particular yum i like to yuck because it's just like <laughs> look like it's like why do you even care so much about like like this deck being good do you know what I mean? It's it's really funny to me. Uh, I mean, it's because it's like, I don't know. It's just funny. It's just funny to me. You used to own Junt, and then you were like, I'm tired of keeping up with this. And I just, I mean, it was just, it was too high value to get. It was just like, I'm not playing these cards. Be gone, Liliana. <laughs> um, I mean, no, it's like, I don't. You know what I mean? It's 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 mostly just it's it's the meta of it, which is just like now I'm gonna be the guy who mentions hating on Junt or something like that. It's also just fun to like bust people's chops like Joe. Right, right. We do agree though that Junt and Foil Junt, two totally different decks that just happen to have the exact same seventy five. Yeah, I mean if you don't if you have foil expedition, you know, shocks and stuff like that, then yeah. You have you have my visual respect. God, and that's all I want so desperately. Yeah, it looks good. I mean, let's close it up, Stan. Let's wrap, let's wrap it up. I'm gonna I'm gonna close this out. It's my turn. Do it, do it, <laughs> doggy. All right. If you have not yet subscribed to our podcast, click click some plus in your Apple Podcasts or your uh, podcast addict or whatever you're using. Uh, you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And then you don't have to remember to download it. And if you use Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating, leave us a review in text. We uh, we get a kick out of those. We'll shout you out. It makes us feel good about ourselves. You want to submit a question. You want to talk to us. You want to ask us what we think about something. Get us a Twitter at the dive down, all one word. Shoot us an email, the dive down at gmail.com. Again, like we mentioned earlier, join our Patreon if you want. Uh, joining in any tier gets you on our super secret Slack server, patreon.com slash the dive down. Again, thanks, Mana Traders, for sponsoring us. Uh, again, use promo code the dive down, all one word, 15% off first three months of renting magic online cards thanks to nowhere and space blood letting us use their music and until next week get out there and enjoy this while it lasts Stan dropped, so I'm waiting for him to come back. Stan, come back. Stan, come back. Is that the air conditioning? How does that feel cold? It feels like it's cold air coming out. I lost Stan. I don't know. He dropped. Oh, there's Stan.